All right, everybody, it is Thursday, June 9th. Jason has a family event today, so uh, I got to choose. And you know, there was only one choice to make. Deirdre Brosa from CNBC to chop up the news. Deirdre, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, Molly, I've just wanted to chat with you anyways. You got that Jason guy out of the way. We're ready to go. Out of the way. I know. I'm kidding. So, you know, I love you, Jason. By the way, I should say that. Jason, we miss you, buddy. Desperately. Not right this second, though. <laughs> this Week in Startups is brought to you by Indochino. Indochino makes custom-fitted suits, shirts, and casual wear at affordable prices. Shop for your next best look or book a virtual style consultation at Indochino.com. Right now, you can get $50 off any purchase of $399 or more by using code TWIST at checkout. Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. And Our Crowd. Our Crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join Our Crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist. I'm very excited because, you know, it's always a little awkward when we have to talk about Elon Musk with Jason because of the homie situation. So let's that. start with this breaking news as of, I think, this morning, maybe late last night, that Twitter plans to comply with Elon Musk's demands for data. Uh, Elon Musk had had basically been threatening to walk away from the Twitter deal, saying that Twitter's refusal or inability to count its bots was a material, what did he say? It was material information that could affect the deal price. And then all of a sudden, the Texas Attorney General, mm -hmm. coincidentally, starts investigating Twitter over its bot situation. So the maximum pressure campaign seems to have worked. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? What are you thinking about this situation? I mean, do you think that Twitter, because all along Twitter has been saying, this is really hard. We can't aggregate this data. Yeah. So now has Twitter been exposed? I mean, ugh, there's just so many twists in this. I feel for the employees, we were just talking about this as we ended the show as I jumped off tech check. And what I said was, I'm interested now that Elon Musk is going to have access to this data, which by the way, um, other companies have had access to this data, not just Twitter, but it can sell this data for people and companies to sift through and pick out what they want. Is Elon Musk going to be able to find something that no one else has? Um, he's been able to do things that no one else has. And then my co-anchor, John Fort, he countered, he said, of course, you can find something through that much data. He's going to find something to build his case to not do this deal. So, mm. you know, it, it, it's true. I, maybe I'm more optimistic. I don't want to play the Jason role here, but I think that Elon Musk sees things that other people don't. So um, maybe he'll find something that was previously undiscoverable that could be good or bad if you believe right. he wants to get this deal done. And I guess that's a crucial question. Does he want to? A lot of folks think he doesn't. Well, and I guess there's there are sort of two parts to that, which is, does he want the deal at all? Or does he want the deal at a lower price? And that seems to be... Possibly. The, maybe he wants to walk away. Maybe he's just sort of like, this is not this is more than I bargained for. And I'm not interested in doing this after all. It's a passing phase, if you will. But it seems more likely that what's happened is Twitter is now trading well below 
Yeah. The 552, 5420, whatever amount that he, whatever joke amount that he offered. 5420. 5420. Thank you. The weed number at the back. Right. I know. I was like, where does the weed go (laughs) in this calculation? (laughs) Um, And so maybe it's a, it's to get a a better deal. Well, so it's not surprising that he wants a better price. Um, The fact that this is Elon Musk and it's Twitter and it's such a big story. We all focus on every little twist and turn, but you know what also happened recently, Molly? Um, Toma Bravo, right? The private equity firm that Mm -hmm. announced it had plans to acquire Anaplan at a certain price quietly adjusted that and a plan agreed to it, but they're now getting a little bit of a discount. So it's not just Elon Musk. The markets are moving so quickly. We cover this every single day. Valuations are getting more and more attractive. Um, we're all focused on Elon Musk because he made such a splash with this. Should the Twitter board accept something in the middle? They probably don't have to because of the way Elon Musk went about this. He's just so brash and he announced this and he said he didn't need to do due diligence. So the position he's in, he's put himself in. Oh, 100%. And and we should be super clear that he actually has no legal right to cancel this deal, right? He has signed a contract. And actually, the contract probably even says something along the lines of, you signed a deal that said you weren't going to do any diligence. So you are not, in fact, entitled to diligence. Yeah. But because it's Elon Musk, who one of our, our noties referred to the other day as like, a sovereign state, you know, he, he can apply this maximum pressure in public. He can move a gigafactory to Texas and then all of a sudden have the Texas attorney general investigating yeah. <laughs> Twitter over a bot problem, which I would argue is not among the top priorities for Texans mm-hmm. in terms of enforcement mm-hmm. mechanisms. Um, and, and so it doesn't actually matter. I mean, I guess that's the question. Does it matter anymore what contracts say? Exactly. Well, let's remember that Tesla, one of the most successful companies of our generation in the world at the moment, one of the biggest market caps, has not spent any money on marketing or communications, right? Elon Musk has been able to work Twitter and this public persona to build one of the greatest companies that we currently have. Is he applying that sort of same playbook to what he wants to get out of Twitter? Um, it feels like it. Is it going to backfire this time? I guess that's what makes this such an exciting story for us. <laughs> right. And of course, we should acknowledge like the in, the elephant in the room, which is that it's all all journalists are on Twitter. Yes. Of course, <laughs> like, of course, journalism is going to cover this to the ground because it's not just his playground. It's ours. Well, Molly, let me ask you, there's been so much discussion of the employees during all of this as well. I think I started, I said, I feel for them. They're in this limbo. But They've kind of always been in limbo. What an interesting company throughout the last decade to cover Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's gone through so many transitions. You had Jack Dorsey go back. What do you think they're thinking right now? I mean, I hear a little bit of it from sources, of course, but is this so different than what it's been through over the last decade? Yeah, I I don't think so, right? I mean, I guess... This sort of existential uncertainty is probably new. What happens if Musk comes in and buys this and takes it private and changes everything? But certainly the number of identities that Twitter has been through. Remember when it was the Arab Spring and it was sort of like going to be yeah. the savior of freedom and liberty across the room because it was going to si- shine across the world, shining sunlight in every corner. And then it was moribund before the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. It was really like on the decline. And then... Trump and the 2016 election really were a huge, I think, shot in the arm for Twitter. Yeah. Um, like, I will never forget 
Les Moonves of CBS saying Trump is terrible for America, but he's great for CBS. He was great for for Twitter, too. And then all of a sudden it's in the eye of the Mm -hmm. disinformation maelstrom. What's the saying, Molly? If you live long enough, live long enough as a hero that you become the villain. I'm sure I'm getting that wrong. If someone can correct me, but... I often get my but basically something like that. Exactly something like that. The sentiment. Um, that's what happens with Twitter, right? Yeah. You talk about the Arab Spring and how it was the savior and it was going to bring information and a voice to everyone around the world. And now it's the target of disinformation. We're kind of seeing the same thing. I don't know, actually, are we seeing the same thing happening to Elon Musk? He's done such amazing things with, with, uh, Tesla with, so with his other companies. So now he's really changing in the public view as well. And it's really hard to figure out what's motivating him here. Is he yeah. bored? Is this his yacht that's bigger than Jeff Bezos's? Is that why he wants Twitter? Why else does he want it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that there is a lot of credence to the idea that it's just passion, that it literally is the product that he loves and the product that he has been able to so effectively use. I mean, yeah. if you had the most effective marketing arm, to your point, <laughs> on earth, and you could own it, I guess, why wouldn't you? It's interesting too. When this whole saga started, we talked a lot about how Twitter's board is basically non-existent on Twitter. They don't really yeah. use it. Yeah. Why haven't they been using it, experimenting with it? It's funny. They've just let sort of Elon Musk run amok and do what he does. Um, and it doesn't feel like there's been any increase in engagement. Not that they necessarily should. They're focused on the financials of this deal. Some would argue that that is a better thing to focus on, but it does go back to what I think Jason might say here is letting someone run the company who loves it. Mm-hmm. And it, that, that's what it comes down to. I guess at what price? They have their fiduciary duty to get it for the price that Elon Musk said he was going to buy it for. Right. I mean, I think uh, you hate to make a prediction where Musk is concerned. Run a Musk. Yeah. Am I right? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, weddings are fully back this summer. As I'm sure many of you know, whether you're the groom in the wedding party or you're a guest, you got to look great. Everything's got to be tight. And if you want to look great, you got to use Indochino just like I do. They make high quality custom fitted suits, shirts, casual wear and more. With Indochino, you can customize everything. Suits and shirts to chinos and bomber jackets at surprisingly affordable prices. You can get your entire wardrobe personalized to your style and taste without spending a fortune. I did this. I bought a bunch of suits before I went to Italy last year, and I had a wonderful experience. They do every little piece to your exact measurement, and you can customize all the details like the lapels, the monograms, the statement linings I love so much, your pockets, and Indochino suits start at just $429 in shirts from just $79. What an amazing deal. I was blown away by the process, by how affordable it was, and the quality of the suits. So if you've got a big day coming up, getting the perfect look is very simple with Indochino. Get $50 off any purchase of $3.99 or more by using the promo code TWIST at Indochino.com. And that's going to let them know that you're a fan of This Week in Startups. I feel like there is no universe in which he pays the original bid for Twitter, and I don't think he even wants to. Is there a universe where this doesn't go to court forever? And then you have the court looking at the data that what is it, 500 million tweets a day, and this just ending up in the legal system for so long? I just, I don't see that happening because it's no good for Twitter. You know, I keep sort of quoting Matt Levine on this one, who has written about the fact that uh, on the one hand, there is the letter of the law. There's an existing contract. It affords no rights to due diligence. 
material impact and material breach is incredibly hard to prove. And there's a billion dollar breakup fee. And all of that is in writing and it's incontrovertible. Except that on the other hand, you have Elon Musk and who the hell is going to want to sue Elon Musk? (laughs) Why would you do that? Right? It's nothing but downside for Twitter. So most likely, he's going to get what he wants. I'm sure it is demoralizing for some employees and thrilling for others. And Mm -hmm. it it's, it's like the most annoying soap opera that I wish I could stop watching. I, I completely agree. Molly, what is your, do you love Twitter or hate Twitter or is it both? I mean, this is a question that we are constantly sort of debating within CNBC, right? You're on TV every day and you see the comments roll in. You're on a podcast, you're on YouTube every single day. Yeah. What would you want to see improved? I mean, I definitely don't understand why that product has not gotten better. My theory about Twitter is that because everyone was so hands off in the beginning because there was this sort of like, it's, it's all free speech all the time. None of the issues that have broken Twitter now, like Mm -hmm. bots and brigading and harassment and spam, all of the issues that were making Twitter, you know, difficult for a segment of the population that was never listened to women of color, primarily Gamergate, for example, when we all decided that Gamergate was like not a thing and didn't enforce any rules around harassment and brigading and spam Mm -hmm. and bots, Mm -hmm. Twitter really did become over the years totally unusable. And then they had to sort of like go too far in the other direction to try to correct it. And so people who had never been even a little bit moderated in terms of their content lost their collective. And I think it's been a failure all along of moderation that has now made it a complete flashpoint, the like center of the culture wars. And so Twitter is like simultaneously the best and the absolute worst. I mean, I remember years ago wanting to wanting to round up a panel for South by Southwest and get like Marty Baron and uh, Mark Thompson, the New York Times guy, or, you know, what's his butt, Dean Bacay, and mm-hmm. the guy from, so, okay, Post, Gerald Baker, and be like, why are you letting your journalists be on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Because it's so clear that Twitter has become the assignment desk for right. media and that fear of getting yelled at on Twitter is materially changing what we report. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it would be a lie to say that it doesn't. It does. Twitter, it's it's this place where um, I'm always very aware that um, within, you know, five seconds, you tweet something out, that could be the difference between being fired and not. You have to be so, so careful with how you use it. But I'm torn. I mean, and we've had this conversation on Tech Check as well. Um, Do you moderate? Do you take people like former President Donald Trump off the platform? And then there's this whole segment of the population that maybe thinks something's being hidden from them, right? Right. right. Or do you allow them to make up their own minds? It was interesting. Um, we had someone on that said, though, that this prominent VC who said that she was blocked by Elon Musk on Twitter. So if he can block someone, that's not free speech either. And there's this constant right. push and pull. I am, I was hoping at the start of this that we, we could see what Elon Musk was going to do here if he was going to make it open source how that would even work. What a fascinating experiment. Now I fear that we're never going to get that opportunity because this is going to be tied up in litigation for years and years. I know, because I agree with you. I would love to see the data on the bots. Like I'm with Elon on that one. I want to see the data on the bots. I want to know if shadow banning exists. I want to know if there's some email chain that says we verify this person and not this person. What if it's not all that exciting? What if I'm sure it's the not. Majority, That's the sad thing. Like, yeah, the majority of Twitter users are just sort of 
they're silent. They're just going on to look. Of course, yeah. you're going to hear the bots because they're the loudest, but there's so many people on Twitter who just use it to follow people and don't actually do their own tweets. I know. Everything is so much more banal than you think yeah. it's going to be when yeah. it comes out in Discovery. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> this is... Fun reporting on it all along the way. <laughs> it is. So yes, to answer your question more succinctly, love slash hate. Yes. Like there isn't there's anywhere no else where you can get such direct access to information on the ground. And that's the part like I want to like cut through all of the journalists on my feed and mm -hmm. get to the people who are actually telling us in real time what's happening. That was like the magic, right? But somehow it all still got mediated by bots and journalists and VCs. And, you know, there still is like information gatekeeping on Twitter that when you can strip that away, it's magical. You can't get that information anywhere else. I mean, I had a, I had a scoop a few weeks ago and I thought, I looked at it and I thought, okay, I could put this on the CNBC website, but within the, you know, 20 minutes it takes me to do that, someone else could get this scoop and report it. Twitter yeah. was the fastest, most effective way to do it. But that's something that we're at CNBC constantly navigating as well. How do we direct people to our site, make sure that CNBC is getting credit for this while matching the speed, the velocity of Twitter? Yeah, it's, I know, it's impossible. It's impossible. Um, I, we only have a short time with you. And so even though we could probably talk about Twitter all day, it's not good for us or America. So let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about a really big business story that happened while everybody else was talking about iOS 16 updates and what's going to happen on your home mm -hmm. screen. Um, Apple is moving into the buy now, pay later space with its new Apple, uh, Apple pay later service and will handle lending internally. So Mark Urban at Bloomberg, just for background, reported that Apple has now decided to manage all of the aspects for buy now, pay later. It's going to be its own underwriter, which of course it can do because as of last quarter, Apple had $51 billion in cash and marketable securities for comparison. The How much kind of no, 200 billion. I think they've got 200 billion dollars. Yeah. I thought, yeah, 51 billion yeah, is that just Oh yeah, yeah. They've got nearly yeah. 200 billion overall. I think they may have added in last quarter 51 billion dollars in cash. Thank you, yeah. Okay, so just to be clear, the 51 billion that I mentioned before was Apple's cash and short-term marketable securities at the end of the last quarter, so presumably money they could spend now. If you include the long-term securities of the additional 141 billion, that's where you get that $200 billion in total cash. But either way, the only other, the other major buy now pay, pay later player, Affirm, has had to partner with Cross River Bank to underwrite loans on its platform. So Apple is in this phenomenal position where everybody has been asking, what are they going to do with this cash? And we were like, maybe they'll buy Disney or Tesla. And turns <laughs> out they were like, no, we're going to go big boy here and be a bank. <laughs> I what? love the way that you just framed that. <laughs> I like that's it. where the real money is, right? Like, <laughs> what would you? They're, like, they're nah. not messing around. They're not acquiring anything. They're just opening up the balance sheet to consumers. I mean, this is bananas. How, from your understanding, will this work for Apple? So I am fascinated by this story. Um, I used to cover fintech, and there's always sort of been the elephant in the room, which is the big tech giants. When would they really push into financial services? They have the users. They have the credit card payments information. Apple has 1.8 billion devices, many users on its Apple Pay program. Um, it's so interesting. I don't think that this is just about buy now, pay later. I think this is setting the tone for Apple to become a full-fledged, as you called it, 
bank or at least offer fin- financial, a full-fledged financial stack. So maybe this is just the beginning, but you're getting into lending and it's so notable that they're already working with Goldman Sachs and MasterCard on their credit card offering, but they're doing this themselves. They created this wholly owned subsidiary. And as you said, Molly, they're going to be lending from their balance sheet, from right. their massive cash pile. Um, three things going for it, which makes this so interesting and so powerful is that Apple vertical integration fintech flywheel that now is getting going, supported by the services uh, business, which has been growing so much. So when they've got the low cost of customer acquisition, right, all of those devices and the people that are using Apple wallet, two, they've got that low cost of capital, which we've talked about $200 billion on the balance sheet. Third, data and underwriting. Apple has, you know, been collecting payments information from their users through the App Store, through buying an iPhone or a computer, whether you miss sort of a payment or you can't make a payment, your credit cards decline for something on the mm-hmm. app store. They can use all three of those things to become quite a formidable player, I think, in the space. Listen, when you're a founder, it's fun to trade your craziest stories with other founders. Recently, Balloon CEO Amanda Greenberg, one of my portfolio companies, told me how Vanta's SOC 2 solution helped her save an important deal in the final hours. Yes, Balloon sells SaaS products and collaborative software. And when they needed 10 documents in place within 48 hours to close a deal, well, Vanta saved the day by supplying customizable templates for Amanda to fill out and helping them through the process all the way to close. So if you don't have your sock too tight, you can't close major customers like this. Vanta's compliance software makes it easier to get and renew your sock too. They continually test against technical and non-technical SOC 2 requirements. They partner with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly within Vanta. And on average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant in just two to four weeks. Compare that to three to five months without Vanta. And guess what? Vanta's going to give you $1,000 off right now for your SOC 2 because you listen to This Week in Startups. Get that $1,000 off right now. Vanta.com slash twist. V-A-N-T-A dot com slash twist. Once again, Vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off. It's very interesting on a number of fronts. One, uh, not least of which is uh, one imagines that this will start to open up all up to even more antitrust scrutiny, even though the antitrust play here is not obvious, right? Apple itself is only barely a majority in the United States in terms of um, penetration. I think it's like 51% is Apple in the US, which is not quite monopoly levels. And they're certainly not going to be a monopoly in banking. However, they become this like incredibly powerful force in terms of this sort of what does future antitrust law look like? Does it look like sheer power and integration of every single thing that a consumer does? <laughs> right. It's already fighting these battles, but there's been so little evidence, especially here in the US, that regulators are going to get anything done. That used to be my biggest point. Why wouldn't Amazon or Facebook or Apple um, or Google go into banking? Because they don't yeah. want to further spur the regulators. But I mean, it's been years that we've been talking about regulation markets don't care investors don't care consumers don't care other companies developers they do care but hasn't made a difference regulators cannot get their act together at least in the u.s europe a little bit more yes but it's still moving into these areas because it thinks it can yeah absolutely and then that raises this sort of other question about apple moving into not just finance but buy now pay later which Mm. you know is arguably 
Well, I guess this is the question. Is it good for consumers? Like, for example, we've seen recently that the U.S. consumer is still spending. So everybody's like, yay, the economy is going to be fine as long as we're buying crap, which is such a delightful way to measure health. Um, However, we're seeing that consumer credit after declining pretty significantly Mm -hmm. during the pandemic is now starting to rise. So people are buying, but they're buying with debt. And then increasingly, they're piling on these buy now, pay later payments And there's been some research that says at least one in four uh, consumers have have missed a buy now, pay later payment. You know, I'm I'm torn on this. We just spoke to Max Levchin earlier this week on Tech Check, and I asked him this this question. I said, there's no real upside for consumers to use buy now, pay later. It doesn't help them build credit, and it could get flagged to you know the credit authorities that they missed a payment. So there's only Mm -hmm. downside for your credit score. On the other hand, I don't know if you know this, Molly, I'm Canadian. <laughs> I've been living in the U.S. for about six years now. When I yep. first got here, despite my credit history in Canada, it didn't matter. I could not get a credit card. I still have issues six years later. It has been so difficult for me to build credit. When I moved here six years ago, I really could have used a buy now, pay later. And I think that there's just this general distress, especially among a younger consumer, to get in with the credit card. There's some surprise along the way. I'm not saying that that's not the case with buy now, pay later, but there's less sign up. Um, and yeah. as there's less upside for buy now, pay later, there's a lot of downside with a credit card as well if you don't understand exactly how it works. So I don't really like that argument is that we should be protecting consumers um, by not offering buy now, pay later. They have overwhelmingly shown us that that is what they want, especially millennials and Gen Z. So why not offer it to them in a good, in a safer way? And I believe there's both companies doing this. I think a firm will actually is willing to deny a consumer if they don't think that their credit worthiness is good enough. They're going to say, we're not going to issue this loan. Apple's starting small with a thousand dollars. Um, so there's a right way of doing it, but then there's all these other companies that have jumped on the bandwagon and will probably issue a BNPL loan, no matter what the credit worthiness of the customer. Right. I mean, it, there's the one argument that this could be troublesome for Apple's brand because finance is one of the least trusted industries <laughs> right, <laughs> among consumers. That's why you see this rise in neobanks who are basically like, yeah, we're yeah. not trying to screw you like everybody else. But on the other hand, Apple really does, to your point, have an opportunity and a firm also to be really transparent with the and terms and Apple really is and do it better. I um, It was so funny. Over the last summer, my six-year-old got some, you know, Christmas money was still sitting in our desk, you know, six months later. But I walked into a bank. This was in Canada. And um, I said, okay, is there anyone here? Like my six-year-old is right here. He wants to open a bank account. In my mind, I'm thinking, here you go. I'm giving you a customer for the next like 50 years. So we'll get a yeah. mortgage in 30 years, um, all of this stuff. And there was two people in their you know, offices with their door shut. And I could see they were doing nothing. They were doing nothing. They were just sitting there kind of puttering around. And you know, the teller said, you need to make an appointment. I'm like, I can see they're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Like, and they said, no, nah, you still need to make an appointment. I said, well, you know, my son's, you know, off camp right now. We can do this right now. I said, no. So I said, oh, this is just so frustrating. This is what I don't want to introduce them to. There's a yeah. way of doing this better. And to me, opening up a Square Cash or a PayPal account or a Chime account um, for him just seemed like a better option at the time. Absolutely. And you could 100% see where Apple's going here, right? They started because yeah. if you look back to, All of the times that Apple has had to work with someone else's restrictions up to and including when they launched the iPhone, 
and it was exclusive on AT&T and AT&T was setting the terms because smartphones were not as popular as they are now. And you fast forward to a time when Apple has probably led the charge on phone unlocking and then right. now is letting consumers figure out how to buy their uh, you know, iPhones directly from mm-hmm. Apple on what is effectively a subscription service. Like they've slowly carved away that carrier power and will almost certainly do the same thing for traditional finance. Like I could imagine exactly. a time when Apple's like, thanks, MasterCard. We appreciate you getting us off the ground here, but we're done. We're going to disrupt you. We're actually going to be the new payments rails. It's going to happen on Apple devices. So Visa and MasterCard, you're not needed anymore. <laughs> right? It's, it's possible. Consumers it's, will be like, a little crazy, but... super. Thanks. Remember when every other interest rate was basically zero and your credit card was still charging you 26 to 30% during a pandemic? So true. Disrupt away. And app doesn't rush into things, right? And that's why I think this is so interesting. Like I said, when I covered fintech, there was always the threat of big tech doing this. Bank of Facebook, Bank of Apple, Amazon moving more into this. Um, the fact that it's happening now and kind of slowly still just with buy now, pay later, but maybe as a first step in getting that full financial stack. That's what I think is so interesting about this. And Molly too, I was wondering, because if you asked me a few years ago, who would have done this first? Um, I would have thought it would be Amazon, right? And it was kind of curious yes. to me that Amazon was partnering with a firm to do buy now, pay later when they could do it themselves. Yeah, I, I am also surprised. There was a the lot of reporting. Maybe the balance sheet, right? And Amazon is in a tricky position. They have maybe. a physical core e-commerce business with a huge logistics network. So they don't have the kind of cash that Apple does. They do not have $200 billion. I think, what do they have? 40, 50 billion? So good. Yeah. Not enough. And they wouldn't have to underwrite their own. I mean, that's just sort of classic Apple style to be like, yeah, we're going to vertically integrate our financial um, product too. But I remember Amazon, I was trying to remember actually, as you were talking, because there was reporting that they were going to start opening some rudimentary banking services, even in their Amazon stores. I think Walmart was doing the same thing. I mean, this is sort of like, it does feel like this is the money printing dream. (laughs) <laughs> in some ways, right? For companies, it's like, man, if we could just figure out how to crack finance, like, yes. Here's the question, though. So Apple is not taking deposits. So we can't quite say that Apple is a bank until it's right. taking deposits, until it has a bank charter. Do you think that's the next step or would that be just too much? I guess that raises the question of why would they? Right now, they can, if they can underwrite their own lending, if they can do buy now, pay later and still sort of like trade with that mm. balance sheet and maybe a little bit of our money, I don't know. Do they need to, I guess, is the question. Anthony Noto, who's the SoFi CEO, he was on our air, I think it was just a few days ago. And I asked him what differentiates yourself from the others. They do have a banking charter. Yeah. And he says that does make their financials a lot better. Mm. Um, and that protects them when you're entering a downturn, when credit gets more expensive, when interest rates are rising. So it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but remember, Walmart tried to get a bank charter many, many years ago. Um, Square has one now as well. You should mention them. Um, right. Who knows? It's it, not as easy. it becomes more regular, but you could see the regulators really sorting up and saying, hold on a second. Yeah. I feel like that's just, money. that's just red meat, right? Yeah. Like that's just yeah. waving the flag in front of the bowl at this point. This is the, okay. at least they can sort of still say like there are plenty of intermediaries between us and the consumer. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. And our crowd is an investment platform that analyzes many of these companies across the global private market. Then they select startups with the greatest growth potential and they bring them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics and quantum computing and so much more. In state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd identifies innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early 
our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from their 46 IPOs or exits. And let me tell you something, investing early is what it's all about. You're going to want to read those deal memos and make a great decision. You're going to learn so much by signing up for our crowd. So you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community right now at rcrowd.com slash twist. Once again, that's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com slash twist. rcrowd.com slash twist. Well, in our last five minutes, um, let's <laughs> let's compare and contrast because I know you talked about this on the show today. Facebook has officially changed its ticker to Meta. Yeah. So on the one hand, you have Apple saying we're going to keep doing what we're doing, revolve around the sun that is the iPhone and add on an incredibly profitable layer of finance. And Warren Buffett is like, yes, please. I'll take seconds, thirds take and more. fourths <laughs> helpings of that. And then you have Buffett's like, I get this. This I understand. The metaverse. Right, I got this. <laughs> Let's see. Make a ton of money. Done. <laughs> on the other hand, you have Meta which is now officially, right? Sheryl Sandberg is leaving. As of today, the ticker has gone from FB to Meta, is all in on this story about how they're going to spend unlimited amounts of money building an unproven business model that will come to fruition in 10 to 15 years. Thoughts on, thoughts on this move? <laughs> it's interesting that you put them side by side. Because the metaverse, right? This is eight years out. We started the show, by right. the way, Tech Check, this morning on this exact question, asking, is Facebook a value or growth stock? Both the people, one VC, one Wall Street analyst on our show, both of them said value stock. And isn't that such an indignity for Facebook or Meta now when they're trying to build the next generation of technology? Um, and they feel that they have to talk about it so much, yet <laughs> the venture capital community and Wall Street are both saying, no, this is a value stock. It's not growing fast enough. The valuation is down. It's not going to grow. Um, and then you've got Apple, which, you know, we know that it has AR, VR ambitions, but it's not talking about it. Honestly, Molly, I was a little disappointed earlier this week when we didn't get more on its vision for the metaverse or for, yeah. for AR and VR. Um, but with an Apple, it doesn't need to because you know they're working on it behind the scenes. They're going to give you something that you weren't expecting, like its own bank, like its own lending facility, right? Right. Um, before it gives you some pie-in-the-sky idea. doesn't mean that Apple's not going to get there, but they are in a different position. They don't need to talk about it like Facebook has. And this is the point that Mike Cohen or John Ford made today. Apple has, such a, has done such a good job vertically integrating that now this financial flywheel seems so obvious, seems so mm -hmm. lucrative. Can you say that? about Facebook. I mean, they tried, right, to make a phone, not really. Are they they haven't made their own chips in the way that Apple has. So there's just no vertical integration there. They have to look to something completely new and grow this vision of a metaverse, which by the way, a lot of folks are skeptical. Yeah. Well, and rightfully because even even if it arrives, even if it is executed properly by Meta, it's 5 to 10 years out. Right. Like there, the the idea of completing this vision in, in under a decade is unlikely. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if this is somebody made the point to me recently that in some ways this is a narrative problem by mm -hmm. Facebook. Like you look at how good Apple is at controlling the narrative. Apple mm -hmm. is like, we're going to keep selling you iPhones at absurd margins. We're going to sell accessories at absurd margins. And we're going to tack on finance, which I'm pretty sure everybody knows makes a lot of money. And then Meta is out here 
And Facebook remains a money printing machine. Mm -hmm, What are its mm -hmm. margins? Like 90%? Great point. Thank you. Makes so much money. And there's nothing, there's nothing that suggests that they will not continue to make that amount of money. But they're out here telling this like crazy story about a thing that's 10 years away. Hold on. Hold on. Is there anything that doesn't suggest they're going to make continue to make money? Some would argue that that is actually that is the fundamental problem with Facebook, Mm -hmm. why they have to talk about the metaverse, because TikTok has proved to be such a formidable competitor. And it's taking ad dollars away that yes, it makes so much money and it will for the kind of foreseeable future. But if we're entering a recession and ad dollars are the first thing to get cut while it's facing all of this competition from the likes of TikTok, maybe that core story is at risk. It might be, although Facebook continues to grow, I think, overseas phenomenally, right? Yeah. So it's it's declining in the United States, but it still is picking up hundreds of millions of users. And even if the again, like even if the advertising base declines somewhat, it's still like a 90% margin. So it's it's hard to imagine, you know, it's not going to be a situation where Facebook is not making yeah. absurd amounts of money, even if it might be like a little less than they were before. So it's very possible that if you were making a narrative choice, what you would try to do is say, we're competition's great for everybody. Stay away regulators. <laughs> we're still making, you know, tons of money in India and Indonesia, and we're picking up users all over the world. And it's a 90% margin. And we're using some of that to invest over here. But mm-hmm. don't worry, we'll tell you about it when it's ready. It's a good point. And also, it may be more believable that Facebook can copy TikTok with reels like it right. did Snap with stories. I mean, they did it before. They just were copying <laughs> and they got the user. So yes, I think that that maybe is the more bullish case. But Molly, it gets back to our conversation, right? I mean, if this is about a narrative, and Charles yep. Sandberg was the one being put out there to tell that narrative or take the fall, Who's doing that now? We talked about this with Jason last time. Zuckerberg yeah. doesn't really talk to media. Do you think he has to put himself out there more? How can they fix that narrative? I mean, heaven help us if Mark Zuckerberg puts himself out there more because he is not <laughs> going to fix it. Let me tell you that. He is I not going to fix it. <laughs> maybe. maybe. He so just, maybe the narrative becomes a reality. I, I, I want to try. Mark Zuckerberg can come talk to us. Yeah, come on. Come on the show. Come on, either of our show. Come on, both. Next week, Zach. We'll do like a crossover show. It'll be amazing. <laughs> All right. Speaking of which, dear Debrosa, CNBC, you are the best. I know you have things to get you to. You are the best, Molly. This um, is so fun. Let's do it tell again. Tell Jason that he can address my Warriors ticket to one market where we broadcast. And Molly, I'll see you courtside. Outstanding. It's going to be a great day. Go Warriors. Okay. Thank you guys so much. And <laughs> by, care, what, do we call, what do we call them? Noties? Noties. Noty gang. Noties. Thank you for having me today. <laughs> Take care. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks again to Deirdre, who is awesome. And the awesomeness rolls on because next up, we have an interview with Kalshi, co-founder and CEO, Tarek Mansour. Remember, Kalshi has built the first regulated predictions market. So if you like the predictions that we make on the show, you're going to like this one because this is the kind where lots of people are betting on event contracts to uh, help us, well, to make money. And also, though provide an accidental data stream that might just tell us the direction that the world is going in a lot better than economists are. It's a perfect pairing with CNBC's uh, Deirdre, and you're going to love it. Stick with us. Hey, Molly, you know what I love to do? <laughs> oh, oh, yes, I do. Gamble. The man loves to gamble. I love it. I love it. It's my chosen profession, angel investing, and now it's yours. Place yeah. bets. Yep. Try to make the best decision you can and reap the reward. And you know, it's uh, some people will call it wagering, some people call it gambling, some people call it investing. Um, And one of the really interesting concepts 
in poker is people do prop bets, proposition bets. I bet you can't hit a three pointer. Okay, mm. what odds will you give me? Okay, just a cold three pointer. We put the basketball in your hands, you don't get to warm up, you just shoot the three. Okay, that's okay. So that's the proposition. It's a prop bet, right? And prop bets are a lot of fun. Like I seen crazy prop bets. There was a prop bet um, that in the next 10 days, you bicycle from Los Angeles, this poker game in Los Angeles to Vegas, and you have 24 hours to do it. Uh, and you have to do it in the next 10 days, and it's 10 grand. And so people make these crazy bets. And sometimes people have done the research on them. Sometimes they're setting somebody up. Somebody's a ringer, right? Yeah. Uh, other times, you know, it's it's just interesting to make a bet on who's going to win the Democratic primary. Now, if a lot of people do this, it can, the, the prop bet can turn into a prediction market because you'll be at the table and somebody will say, well, you know, the average NBA player hits 30 to 40% of their three-pointers, but they're in a game and there's defense, but they're also super qualified. Uh, I think you have a 15% chance of hitting this. I'll lay seven to one odds. So you put up a thousand, I'll put up 7,000. If you miss, you give me a thousand. If you hit it, I give you 7,000. So you, you, you lay odds, right? And laying odds and doing that just makes you really crisp, right? It makes your mm -hmm. thinking clear because you're putting skin in the game. Mm -hmm. I love this concept of, uh, as a way of looking at the world. That's how I look at the world. What are the chances if I invest in this company? You know, it's going to pay off at some some ratio. But yeah. the thing that I love is prediction markets and prediction markets. Th there were a bunch of them 10, 20 years ago. In trade was one. They're, they're fraught with a lot of legal issues. Uh, but apparently people are starting to work them out. And I don't know if you've ever seen like you'll have 538 put the odds on a presidential election. Right. Or who's going to win the NBA finals at the start of the year or the start of the playoffs. And then, um, you know, a prediction market might have it slightly different. So you're like, well, who do I go with? There were a lot of people who thought Trump was going to win in the prediction markets, but maybe some other people, you know, who were professionally predicting didn't think he, he would, right? As a perfect example. So it can be deltas between a prediction market yep. and what experts say, and then what you think. And this is just a great way to triangulate. So if I forced you to bet on something, you'd really be more thoughtful. Yeah. Uh, so today we have one of these new markets emerged and I was like, well, let's have this conversation because I think it's an important one. So maybe you could queue up who's our guest today. Yeah, this is super interesting. And I am very excited to have a conversation about probabilistic thinking in the mm -hmm. context of all of that. And then also, oh my God, you can do this. It's legal. Tarek yeah. Mansour is the founder and CEO of this new company called Kalshi. Welcome, which lets you bet on what are called event contracts. It's the first uh, betting market that we know of betting market company to be fully regulated by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission on the show. That's the legal part. And you're mm -hmm. betting on swaps whose payout is dictated by the outcome of, of events. So exactly what you were saying. One current example on the site is, will the average new COVID-19 cases in the United States be greater than 200,000 by September 22nd, 2022, which we know will be if we keep having <coughs> conferences. <laughs> Kalshi CEO and Super spreaders, as we like to call them. <laughs> Super spreaders, as we like to call them. Uh, CEO and co-founder Tarek Mansour of Kalshi. Welcome to the show. Did I say that right, Kalshi? That was Kalshi? great. That was great. Thanks for okay. having me, Jason and Molly. Very excited to be here. So, Thanks for uh, coming. Yeah. T tell us um, why, uh, what, what, what does your uh, prediction market do? How does it work? And how do you make money as the company uh, that provides this service? So, so how does it work? And then how do you make money? 
classic mm-hmm. entrepreneurial questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the way we, we've thought about it, the way we always describe it is we're building something like the New York Stock Exchange for events, for a new asset class, right? The same way that you buy stocks where the underlying is a company, you buy futures where the underlying are tangible things like oil and metals. We're like, how about we take things that have economic value like COVID or economics or the outcome of you know political or geopolitical events and create a market where people can get exposure to that, right? And the way to structure that is actually quite simple. It looks like a prediction market. It is a prediction market. And what, what we do is we structure these swaps um, that essentially pay out $1 if an outcome happens and zero if not. And so you can buy these swaps, buy, buy or sell them at any price between zero and one. And that price that you're entering the trade at um, is the probability, right? If you're buying 40 cents of the dollar, you believe that there's a 40% chance that the outcome is going to happen. And if you want, let's say you buy, well, Brexit happened by the end of the year, you buy at 40 cents, you can wait till you see if the outcome happens, or you can exit your position like you do with any options or swaps trading uh, before maturity. Let's say the price moves to 70, you can exit at 70 uh, and you make your 30 cent on a dollar profit. Um, so yeah, that's the sort of fundamentals. Uh, Kalshi, I mean, as you said, uh, Jason and Molly, there's been a lot of trials for this idea of like, how do you get exposure to that? And, and if you're interested, I can talk about the origin story. Uh, and the thing that has been kind of difficult for his face is regulation. And Kalshi has spent three years and we're the first fully regulated exchange at a federal level. How do you make money? How do we make money? So that's a great question. So we take transaction fees, very simple sort of exchange business model, the same way that CME or New York Stock Exchange take fees, essentially. No what are, the, like where are those fees? If I were to bet $10,000 in this, you know, uh, bet about the COVID uh, number of cases of 200,000 by a certain date. So I bet I bet that 10,000 and I win. And I guess somebody on the other side bet and lost. Um, you have to balance out those two sides, um, I'm assuming. Uh, so how much do you make and how much do I make? So if I won the bet and it was 50, 50, I would theoretically get back 10,000, right? If it was, if it was even odds. Correct. So if this was trading at 50 cents, am I correct? And that's even odds. So I bet 10, I would theoretically get 10, but I'm sure there's a VIG in here. Uh, that's how you make money. So what is the VIG, the vigorish, the, the tape? Yes, absolutely. So, um, the average fee, it depends on the price at which you're entering at, you know, if you're entering at 50 versus 10, it's different prices, but the average fee across all prices is 1%. It tends to average a little bit less because actually things are not usually at 50, 50. Um, and so, yeah, you would take like, you know, you win 10,000, you pay a hundred dollars out of that to the exchange. Now, the thing that's very important here is that you are trading against other, like other traders, other funds, the same way, like it's a central limited order book. So you actually go and tell the exchange, I want to buy, let's say. $10,000 or 10,000 contracts at 50 cents. That's what I'm willing to pay. The same way that you do for a share of Apple. And then right. someone else might be willing to sell at 50 cents and then there's a transaction. Got it. But I can't mm-hmm. just put a market order in where I say, I'll just bet 10,000 at 50, but if it, but just fill 10,000, you, you don't do that, right? No, you you could, actually you could do a market order. It's a great question. Uh, as long, yeah. And it will get filled at whatever price is basically available. Got it. So if you just, you're absolutely certain that this COVID thing's going to spread, you're David Freeberg, you're the Sultan of science, you've got a theory and you're like, listen, I know this is happening. I'll just keep betting till the cows come home. They, you know, or you just have great conviction. You could buy at 50 and then 45 and 40 and fill the order like that. But you need to have people on the other side. Got it. What happens if you don't get enough people on each side? Because then that can screw you up, right? If you don't have enough action on both sides, what if everybody just wants to bet the warriors or Everybody wants to bet COVID's going coming back with a, you know, a fury and two hundred thousand was too. It was a it was a bad bet and it just boom. Nobody wants to take the other side. What happens? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and and you know uh, you, you mentioned probabilistic thinking and that's why you know I, I love your Twitter, Jason. I mean it, it's 
people that think probabilistically, which tends to be traders. I mean, that's how we started the company. It's, it's mm -hmm. traders. If a lot of people believe COVID is not going to, or is going to happen, everybody is on the same side. The price is going to move from 50 to 90, 95, 99%. Yeah. And those people are okay buying the 99, 99% um, outcome because they consider them to be bonds. You're getting five, three, 4% yield over the next few weeks. Uh, that is relatively, you know, you can call it risk-free. It's for, you know, 99% of the cases you're going to get that yield. But the interesting part is that, you know, and this is kind of the common idiom in prediction markets and traders is like, you know, 1% is not 0%. 100% is not 99%. There are traders, for example, back in uh, June, that have bought a yes on 1% on whether we're going to get back, uh, get another COVID wave that is actually even worse than 2020. Those traders are 100 wow. x yeah. yeah, it's basically people buying tail risks and people that know how to evaluate these tail risks. Can, and if can they it go to a decimal? So could it be 99.9 .9 and be a thousand We're working to one? on that. It's, it's oh, funny. Mm, it's, the limitation coming. right now is the banking system. <laughs> the banking system doesn't have centi cents. <laughs> so ah. uh, that's something we're working on, but we're getting there. God, I really want to start a band called Centi Cents. Um, <laughs> tell, me, tell me what made you want to do this. You know, I'm looking at your background. You were at MIT, you were at Palantir, you were a quantitative trader at citadel like is this for you because you're super passionate about this type of trading and you think it's really fascinating like jason or were you also just like people are gonna do this like crazy because they cannot help themselves and it will rain money the end yeah i mean i think uh, I'll, I'll give you the origin story so i, I think um definitely a markets fanatic i mean I, I love markets i just like love the concept of you know everything has a price and, you know, when, you, when I was trading at Goldman and other places, we always you know, used to play this game called make a market. So it's like, you, what is the probability around, I don't know, Kim and Trump are going to get out of North Korea to deal. And then we'd make markets and then buy a certain odds and then trade sort of with each other. But the more interesting thing that happened is, so when I was at Goldman in 2016 in that summer, uh, I was working on this exotics desk. It was this equity exotics desk. And all the flow, I'm talking 90% of the flow was about get us exposure to Brexit or let us, allow us to hedge exposure to Brexit. That was institutions. That was a very legitimate flow. We're talking billions of dollars. And what we would do is we bundle these kind of weird swaps and options and put them all in one bundle, sell it to them as a good proxy, but not actually what they were looking for. And it was very expensive. Uh, sometimes it was like 40% premiums. I was like, okay, how, how, what if they just trade directly on the event? I mean, that's what they want to do anyways. Why are they doing it indirectly? Then I worked at Citadel and that's also some of the things that we were doing. So taking exposure like macro, macro backs, macro trades, and, but doing it via swaps or options indirectly. And so the more we thought about it, the more we like, I mean, this makes perfect sense, you know, just getting exposure to specific events. And, you know, the more we looked into it, the more we realized, okay, actually this doesn't exist because of the regulatory piece. And we're naive enough at the time to, uh, to essentially go through the regulatory piece. And that was great. I mean, that was, you know, we're in retrospect, that was a phenomenal sort of process. Uh, previously, right. just to clarify, like previously, this has only existed as sort of Las Vegas line betting. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there, there were, I was saying like a few kind of, as, as, as Jason mentioned, a few like unregulated that tried and then, you know, got shut down by regulators because, you know, this is not like Uber, this is financial instruments. People get hurt if it's not done well. Um, and, you know, maybe a few crypto trials and, and, and things like that, but nothing in a kind of fully regulated, you know, properly vetted uh, 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 way at, at a scale, at a scale of a proper exchange. Uh, so, yes. How do you pick which bets go on the site? And then I guess the follow-up is, can a customer place a bet up there like a prop bet? You know, I've, I've been talking to people on the show, and we've made bets about VTOLs, vertical takeoff and landing. When will a consumer be able to buy a ride from Manhattan to JFK or LaGuardia or Newark? Let's say you pick those three New York, major New York roads. When will somebody be able to pay for a ticket 
and in the same day take a veto you know ride uh you know um from manhattan to a, a major new york airport like that's like an incredible bet to me right and we just pick a year and then you say I, I, yeah. I love this one i think maybe we should put it on the uh, i actually you know i'm <laughs> sure the market team is listening so I, I think they will have them sort of put it up so yes customers can can suggest markets um and i mean the way we have a whole process regulatory process we need to vet sort of all these markets and uh, the way to think about them is they are markets right they, they get a ticker right apple has a ticker and it's listed on the new york stock exchange it's the same thing here it gets a ticker it's reported uh, all of that and then people are essentially trading on this market uh, now you know the mix is like we look at what is top like what are the top risks today that people are worried about the things that are on the news people that are uh, what are people thinking about and then two is we um essentially follow what whatever like members are asking for and and actually this is actually very well within the types of markets that we love putting up in the exchange because there's yeah people that want to speculate and express their views on that market but there might be also people that want to hedge or insure themselves about this taking longer than expected or these types of things so in that so, way mm -hmm. if i have some risk in my business i don't know like i produce a certain crop uh or i need oil for my business because i run a private jet company uh whatever it is um i could make a hedge here i could bet the opposite of what i'm experiencing in my day job in my business as a hedge to try to hey if oil prices go up it screws my business so i'm gonna bet i guess in that case that oil prices would go up and make money from that that would then if i lost money in my day business would make up for that lost i mean it's a very sophisticated thing to do i think yeah. and crazy but people are already doing this kind of stuff with commodities i believe like if you were in the, if you had some um problem in your business i think actually airlines do airlines actually do this do they buy these kind of things because i know they can buy credits they could buy oil in advance and make a contract with somebody to buy oil at a set price for the next five years or three years and they give the money in advance i guess and people agree on a, a set price but are people doing that kind of stuff and what's a what's a great example of it yeah absolutely I, uh, yeah i'll talk to a few so i mean i think one absolutely airlines do this that's one of the biggest you know that they are one of the most natural use cases for all the futures and that's how the oil future market really developed to that scale great you know grain farmers do this with grain futures um and uh the 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 thing with these you know i totally agree with you people are doing this it is not predominant it's not something that normal individuals and small businesses are used to but normal individuals and small businesses are more used to insurance which actually our type of markets are a little bit more structured like insurance because it's like kind of an event that could happen that could hurt you. And if that event hurts you, now you have a position that can sort of offset um, that hurt, that you know, risk mm -hmm. to your bottom line that you get. So one of the things that our traders are doing on the platform right now, we have this market up is about student loan forbearance. You know, people have a mm -hmm. ton of student loan exposure and they have a lot of exposure on whether the White House is going to sort of extend those student loans or not, right? And so... On average, you know, the average sort of US student right out of school, they have like $30,000 of debt in student loans. So what they can do is like, if they actually have to repay that, they put on a position on Calshi. And if they end up getting hit by that 30, 10 to $30,000 by a certain decision by the White House, they get compensated by that trade on Calshi essentially. Um, and uh, that is a perfect type of hedge that, you know, uh, our, some of our traders are doing currently on the platform. Uh, there's a lot of things around the economy, like whether the Fed's gonna raise interest rates, you can imagine how many people are you know, exposed to these types of things. Other things around tax bills, you could hedge your, some, of, some of your tax exposure down the line um, and a variety of other things. Um, and So let me think that through. If I bet that taxes were going to raise in California and I bet and I thought my if, if it did raise, my exposure would be $10,000. Uh, and if I could find a trade on there and I bet 
hey, uh, I bet that it's going to raise by whatever $10,000. I know, and I win that bet. I win $10,000 and I pay 10,000 more in tax. So it kind of cancels out because I was able to make that bet. Exactly. And so you're essentially buying insurance. You're, you're saying like, I'm going to pay whatever market price is to enter this contract. So I will pay today like $1,000 to get 10,000 shares of the income tax. It's actually currently on, the, on, the, on, our, on our exchange. Right? And now if you know, the government does it actually in, in increase taxes in such a way that your exposure now, you have to pay 10,000 extra in taxes, that is fully offset by the payoff from the market, your 10,000 shares. And then to dig a little deeper, I could potentially, if I'm the airline or the person who's going to get hit by the tax thing, you're saying, as a consumer of this product, I can suggest this bet if it doesn't already exist on your platform, what happens after that? Like, it, it sounds, I mean, I can't just list it directly. It's not yes. a GoFundMe situation. So what is the oh, no. vetting that occurs after Jason is like, ooh, I'm a little worried about this taxing. You know, what would be a cool thing to bet on is this. Yes, yeah, so that's absolutely a great question. So I think we, there's two pieces. There's one, is this market going to be liquid enough and build enough volume, right? If, if it's something that's very esoteric for one person, it's usually very difficult to list it on the exchange because they won't build liquidity. There needs to be some, and that's also the things that we really, that matter to us is risks that are pretty predominant and prevalent for a variety of people and businesses. And so that's one thing that we evaluate. If it is prevalent and predominant, okay, we can list it, we can build liquidity for it and build volume for it. Then it goes through regulatory process where we vet a variety of different things. And this is very, very crucial part of the process because one, we need to make sure it's not readily, what we call from regulatory standpoint, readily susceptible to manipulation, right? This is a financial instrument. Right. And the same way that stocks, you have a lot of safeguards around insider against insider trading and a lot of other things. We have safeguards around insider trading here, making sure it's not manipulable, making sure that someone cannot just control the outcome and make money off of it. Um, and so that's a lot of analysis we do on the data. So what is the data source? What are we going to mm -hmm. use? This is a government reputable agency. Is it a private source? Do we have the right licensing agreements and right restrictions on how they use that data or how they input it? Um, and then it goes to other things like making sure it has economic utility, can be used for hedging. And you, you guys mentioned, right? Like, this is, you know, one of the main things about our contracts is they are not betting or gambling or anything like that. And because the, historically the line and how it's been uh, defined is, you know, financial instruments, sure, people speculate, people speculate on stocks, people speculate on grain futures, and that's an important part of markets. But at the end of the day, you need these financial instruments because they have economic utility. So I guess in this example of like a VTOL taking a vertical and takeoff landing, human flight from JFK to, to JFK from you know, or to LaGuardia probably would be more apt from, you know, Manhattan, uh, you would want to make sure that somebody didn't buy a VTOL, sneak it onto a pier, land, have their friend give them 100 bucks and take them there to win the bet, right? That would be a, a perfect example of market manipulation. And you would have to say a major company like Uber or Joby yeah. does a flight and you could actually make the bet tight. So there's some rigor here in exactly. constructing the bet or the wager or, you know, prediction here. Is that, is that how you solve it? Like for that? That's absolutely correct. I mean, it, there's a variety of kind of use cases and it also depends on the different types of markets. Mm. Um, but a lot of it is really checking what the data source and the, like what we call the source agency, the, the, the mm. body that basically determines that outcome and making sure they have, you know, integrity around the process of how the, that outcome is, is determined. And oftentimes if it's not a public agency, uh, because public agencies already have a lot of rules around don't trade on things like, for example, in, in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you cannot trade ahead of the release of the inflation or jobs number. So those are really safe to use uh, because right. uh, there's a lot of restrictions around that. But if it's a private, mm -hmm. we actually have data licensing agreements where we enter into agreements where they have to prohibit their employees from trading, for example, anyone that's around the data source from trading. Ah. 
Same thing as kind of the rules that you have around insider trading. And that's really important to make sure that mar there's market integrity. So in that example, if you were going to do Joby or Uber's yes. VTOL program, you'd want Uber and <laughs> Joby to agree that their employees aren't going to place these bets because they have an impact on it. And right. so in my case, if we did a weight bet, hey, Jake Howell's going to weigh more or less than he does on this date, you know, a year from now, can he keep the weight off? And everybody wants to bet on that, which would be hilarious. I wouldn't be able to bet on it as the person who would be determining the outcome, but everybody around me could, and they could send me donuts, you know, every day. But Absolutely. Do that's that. correct. Yeah. I mean, do it's it, but don't do it. Yeah. What's your burden of enforcement and to what extent does this slow down, you know, the number? It's interesting because like, in some ways you're a volume business, you presumably want to list a lot of contracts and have a lot of volume and liquidity, but it sounds like because you're adhering to regulations that allow your business to exist, it might slow you down a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, actually, I see it as a very positive, very, very positive forcing function to actually build volume in the long term, not I mean, necessarily short term, but in the long term. Because if you see a lot of, if you, you know, pop out a lot of markets and there's like a lot of issues in these different markets and things like that, what happens, like people might trade them, but they start trading them in very little amounts. So the example that actually Jason mentioned, it's a very interesting, fun uh, potential trade, but at the same time, people won't put very legitimate and serious money there. You know, people are not going to do a $10,000 trade on that because the first right. thing that's going to come to mind is, you know, Jason can just determine that outcome single-handedly um, and, and that's risky. So in some ways, actually, the markets that tend to be the most successful are the ones that truly are safe from manipulation, insider trading, and a, a variety of other things. Um, and so the, it, it actually pushes us towards the right balance of like how many markets we push, build proper volume in them and get them to sort of get to escape velocity. Um, uh, because they are safe and, you know, safeguarded against a, a lot of the fraud. On the question of burden, it's full, the exchange has a big, big burden of enforcement, essentially. You know, so you see in the New York Stock Exchange a lot of time, like Goldman Sachs trader charged for insider trading. We have the same thing. We have our surveillance systems we built in-house over three years, vetted by the regulator. They check all sorts of weird patterns. They match with KYC, we have all investigative team. And then those get referred. It could be a fine all the way to criminal prosecution, actually. Well, and we just saw that, right? They People yeah. think like the DOJ and like the SEC are mm -hmm. going to let people play games in crypto. And here we go, you know, somebody at, um, you know, as I predicted, <laughs> give myself credit for that prediction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the person at OpenSea who was front running the market, the DOJ was like, yeah, you, that's a crime. And they're like, but it's crypto. It, it doesn't, it does it's not a stock. <laughs> and the DOJ was like, yeah, we don't know, care. Still. <laughs> We, we, we catch people when they commit crimes. Do bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I guess everybody's wondering uh, in crypto web three land, like, well, isn't this on the blockchain? Why aren't you doing this? I guess it's because you don't want to go to jail. Like you want to do it legitimately. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, I think my, my view is, you know, I mean, there's a lot of interesting parts for it. I, I just don't see any meaningful today, at least any meaningful benefit uh, other than if you wanted to skirt regulation, which is very much not in line with our ethos. Uh, and it's a little bit what you said. I mean, look, crypto can be great. The thing is like any financial instrument could be a weapon of mass destruction if done, done poorly. It, you know, there's a lot of scams in crypto and financial industry more broadly. And you saw what happened with Luna. I like, we are very big believers in regulation. If you want to build a, a business that's sort of built to withstand the, the test of time, that you know, it's going to be around for decades, not for a year. And then, you know, you get in trouble and Pe people get People hurt. have made prediction markets and gambling markets in crypto. I've been pitched on a number of them. Have any of them reached any reasonable traction? Uh, and are people doing prop bets on them, one-to-one -one bets, whatever? 
And, and what do you think of that space? What would you tell your friend if they were going to participate in those uh, in terms of protecting themselves? From manipulation from scams yeah there, there's a lot of actually crypto based you know i think there's a few that pop up a week now and it's like cash on crypto or other types of things i mean i think it's kind of pretty consistent it's like this is a financial instrument it's a swap it's a future and option however you want to call it a financial derivative essentially and history has shown that when these things are done and without the oversight of a regulator without proper safeguards and customer like for customer protection market integrity people end up getting hurt and, and we're seeing this in crypto right now. It, it is always, and the reason is because people love making money, right? And if you give someone the ability to make money with full control, they start building scams and Ponzi's and all these different things. Um, and so I'm actually pretty excited about the crypto space getting regulated. I think it's going to actually allow Bitcoin and crypto to achieve its full potential in a, in a regulated and safe way. So that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the regulated alternative is yeah, always probably sure, yeah. better for a couple. If people can cheat, there's a number of people who will try and cheat. They're going to exactly. cheat. Well, and Absolutely. you talked about the the um, CFTC approval ensuring that kind of long-term success, right? And yeah. the volume that you will need to be successful. It also gave the stamp of approval that led Sequoia to invest in you. Like there are a lot of signals, right, that, that regulation consent. Is that true that Sequoia only made its investment after you got that regulatory approval? That is correct. I mean, I think we had, we had talked to Alfred uh, Lin from Sequoia at the time. He actually had done a PhD around similar things to prediction markets. Way, you know, way back when he was going to go through, through it. So it's a market that has always fascinated him. And he's seen kind of over the years, the unregulated piece of it. I remember he, he just, it was very simple. It was like one text, like regulation. It's like that this is financial markets regulation. And we were already working on the regulatory piece because from day one, that's what we wanted to do. And I told him, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to you when we, we get that. So that was definitely a, pretty much a very, very large piece uh, of, of the investment. Yeah. And, and how many people are participating in the largest market, you know, that you have right now or the largest, you know, trade? What's the scale of this right now? Is it hundreds of people, thousands of people? Is it millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars? What, what's the scale of the business today? Yeah, scale of, yeah. So I think some of our largest markets, so we, we're really focusing on what we call, like, I would say, like traders today, options traders and, and day traders, people that are used to kind of the idea of trading and that understand it. You know, cash is a little bit sophisticated if, if kind of someone who has never traded before, uh, even though we're doing a lot of learning and education to, to get there. So those traders, I mean, they trade quite a bit. Uh, they, you know, they, they're pretty serious about and professional about their trading. And so often that's our biggest market. We're talking thousands of traders. You know, we have millions of dollars traders in some of our biggest markets. Um, our markets, you know, obviously like happen on like sometimes daily and weekly basis. So there's like kind of this refresh. Uh, but you know, you have things like economics, like Fed so far, it's, you know, been trading like millions of contracts. Um, we had some of, uh, uh, you actually, uh, you post, post the volume, volume right? right? Yeah. Yeah. We post volume a, a, right. and, and transaction numbers. Yeah. So today Fed interest rates is, a, is there, uh, COVID wave, you can see inflation. These are some of the markets that are kind of featured for today. Hmm. Um, tell us about your raise history because we touched on that briefly, but there ha have been big bets made on your success, right? Your series a was $30 million at $120 million post. What is the big long-term bet here? Is it just that everybody's going to want to do this? And by everybody, I mean, I Volume, assume yeah. institutions, yes. right? Yes. I think the the way, yes, yes to everything, volume, institutions. <laughs> I mean, the long-term vision is we want to build uh, an exchange, a platform where that, that sort of dominates this asset class, this asset class of events. You know, the same way that CME has dominated interest rate swaps uh, and general types of commodities. ICE is very big on on, on energy uh, uh, futures, we want to sort of dominate events. Um, and the way that we see it is events are very relatable. 
more relatable than a lot of the other asset classes that are traded everywhere. People know, understand politics, COVID, economics, things that are around them. And two, they impose a lot of risk to the system. It's very real, right? And, and you know, when Brexit happened, a ton of people got hurt and they didn't know how to sort of insure themselves or hedge themselves. Same thing with COVID. And so the idea is like, we basically get to a point where institutions and businesses are using this um, in their kind of normal financial planning on a yearly basis. Uh, same thing with individuals where they're like, okay, I'm going to hedge my volatility, my exposure to the future. I'm going to make my fu- future more certain by reducing my volatility with respect to all these events. Uh, and so this is sort of the big um, uh, vision. The second thing that comes out of the vision, and Jason, you mentioned this, something that I part- particularly love, I feel like racial markets or, or these types of markets are attacks on both. Uh, I want to mention this on Bloomberg last time, which is the idea that like, a lot of people just say all sorts of stuff polls and all these different things. When, when you have money on the line, when you're actually trading on your belief, the market tends to be more truthful. Like mm-hmm. pricing is truth. You, you don't lie when you're putting money on the line. And well, that's and wonder, a very exciting. Yeah. To sort of follow up on that, we had a conversation recently where we were, you know, where I was ranting, as I often do, about the fact that we run so much of our policy on what economists say. Yes. And economists are wrong all the time. With almost no accountability for that. It's like, wow, they don't even read or collate their own reports. And so I wonder, like, do you see a world where, ironically, like crypto, this is the type of tool that could decentralize economic information and pricing signals in a much more accurate and reliable way? 100%. I mean, we're already seeing that world unfold. So one thing, one piece of data... We have forecasted uh, the inflation numbers uh, more correctly than Bloomberg's economist survey, which is the, you know, the, mm. the, the state of the art, seven out of the last eight times. Uh, and um, we are already seeing... Te- well, when you say you, the Calcium. market of people playing, yes. placing bets. I'm bad at forecasting. I'll never yeah. do the market. I, yeah. I don't know. I have no yeah. idea, but you know, I trust the markets. So the markets, the markets forecast, the probability has been more accurate in seven out of the last eight times. And we're already starting to pick up in press and TV we're asking us and asking some of our like people on the team to come and just show the market forecasts because people are mm. starting to trust them. And that's mm. very, very exciting to me because, and one thing that you pointed, for example, with economists, the way they, they make their predictions, there's this kind of herd mentality thing where like they all kind of group the same predictions because, you know, if they're right, they're right. But if they're wrong, no one wants to be wrong alone. So they right. kind of tend to always converge towards the wrong mm. prediction. Whereas again, if you tell them, put your money on where your mouth is, put your money on the line, things are going to be very different. It's really interesting Amazing. to look when you, when you have a prediction market for the Fed interest rates or for inflation, there is a time and then there's also an amount. So if you were to mm-hmm. look at the Fed interest rate, you know, and you say, hey, the Fed interest rate at the June 2022 meeting will be greater than 1%, 99% say yes. Then you drop down to 1.25 and you get to 95% say yes. So, okay, that's where things start to break. But then you get to one, greater than 1.5, Molly. And it's like 6% say, yes, that's going to happen. You go to inflation, um, not as an abrupt because it's not as predictable, right? And so you look at something like, hey, the uh, inflation rate being greater than, you know, uh, I guess the this is the increase in inflation being greater than 4.4% in May. So that would be the Correct. increase from the previous month or from a, the, the previous mark, right? Yes. Yes. So whatever the beat was in April, if you say, hey, greater than 0.4% more than that, it's 91 cents. Now you drop down to 0.6 and all of a sudden it drops down to 80 cents 
And right. so you, you kind of can like triangulate, you know, and being going up 0.8%, I guess, month over month here, it's down to 33 cents. So you really start to get a sense of like what people think like inflation is going to be increasing. Um, and it looks like on the order of the consensus is 0.5, 0.6%. Correct. Yes. So, so it's really interesting when you start thinking about this for a discussion, Molly, like, as a starting point to your point, like, who are you going to trust people placing the bet with mm -hmm. skin in the game or economists whose job it is, ultimately to appease the person who gave them their job? Yeah, like to stay employed, you know, and this is the problem, like, who? What is the motivation of the people at the Fed, right? It's is it to keep their job? Is it to be independent critical thinkers? Like, it, if their net worth was based on the bet, it, they'd be making a different bet. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what they did in 2010, and what they're doing now, it doesn't seem to match to your point, Molly, like maybe the best decision making uh, process. Well, and it looks like you are drawing conclusions here, too, right? You've got a now a Fed interest rates forecast powered by Kelsey, yes. like tell me about how you're doing some of those data insights. And how you it, is that a product in the future? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the idea what we did with this, and we're actually launching a new inflation dashboard as well. Is like, you know, people have Bloomberg that gives the Bloomberg economic surveys and that's twenty nine thousand dollars a year we're like how about we just make this public and let everyone see what the market yeah. is forecasting in real time and the other really important thing is if you see there's a scroll bar we let people see how the forecast has evolved over time oh, so if wow. you kind of take it from today till you know, this is how the people's expectation have moved based on what the fed is saying over time about where we're mm. going to land right and wow. this is tells incredible. you how i mean the, oh. how the economy has evolved right and this is a and revolution it, Tarek, yeah. this is a revolution and I'm here yeah. for it. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> economists. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's really interesting if you if you move the slider, like you're saying, you can see, you know, if you go back a couple of days, uh, if you go back into November, December, I guess, is that? If I were to move the slider. No, this is March 1. So if you, if you go back all the way March. back with the slider, this Got is the expectation. So this is March. Yes. And this is predicting going forward into November, December of 2022. Correct. Correct. So from the month of March, in the beginning of the month, people thought November, December would be at 1%. Yes. Then they think now 2.75. Yes. So over March, people, I guess, are believing what the Fed is saying. Yes. Yeah, so it was a time clear. Where, exactly. Because at the time, you know, the, the, the language was still very dovish and inflation is transitory and the problem is no. Russia. And now the language has changed. And you can see how uh -huh. we could have avoided this. You know, this yeah. could have been a lot smoother than what it looks like right now. For those of you not who are listening to this, if you use Spotify for video or YouTube, you can watch the video or if you search on uh, your podcast player for this week in startups video, you can download the video version. We have a video RSS feed. So that's available to you youtube.com slash this weekend. But there's a slider uh, on this, um, you know, prediction of the Fed funds rate as a really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's really powerful to see the consensus change over time. We're doing yeah. the same for inflation and a variety of other things. We might do some things around like, uh, you know, the belief around how bad the recession is going to be. Is it going to be recession, stagflation? Is it going to be depression? And see how kind of market is going to evolve and that perception is going to evolve over time. A variety of these different things. And I think this is very important because it's the first time we're going, I mean, at least myself, you know, uh, from a professional standpoint, it's the first time I'm going through kind of a proper bubble eruption and, and a potential crisis. And it'd be interesting to see how the public sentiment evolved throughout these crises and have a kind of, on the record, public record, like public record and audit of how that sort of evolved over time.
Here's a crazy so bet Molly found. Tell them about this bet you found. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm definitely all in on the interest and in inflation and the recession conversation. But what I really think is amazing is that apparently 87% <laughs> of buyers do not think that we are going to land anybody on the moon for 2025. What is this? NASA's been late. <laughs> They've been, they've been sort of missing a lot of deadlines consecutively. <laughs> and this is what's so interesting because, you know, on the, on the news, it's like, oh, we're doing great and, you know, government is launching. But NASA has been missing most of their deadlines and traders were not going to put money without research. They do their research. They know what's going on. They look at the state of our technology, everything. And right now and they're that, pricing it at 10%. I mean, exactly what you're saying. That's like a larger, this points to a larger question, right? Like it's super fun to ask whether we're going to, whether we are going to send someone to the moon. But the real question here is what is NASA doing? Where is that money going? What does yes. it say about the state of American innovation? What does it say about privatized space flight? Like if you infer from this that you should buy SpaceX, hmm. you know, you've had a really contextual, complicated conversation based on a pretty funny headline. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Love it. I think, I, I think so I'm, interesting. Buying, I'm buying no. Yeah. I would pay 10 to one that they don't get there. <laughs> I mean, that's basically the odds right now, right? You're, yes. You're, you're paying yeah. 10 to 1 or whatever uh, that they don't get there. Well, well, um, to, to Molly's point, I mean, one thing I would say is the interesting part of, of markets at the end of the day, even for, for st stocks markets, the kind of this idea of price dissemination or price spacing, right? Like you're getting a lot of different traders to go and research and drag, you know, bring information out. They figure out how to do it. They model it. They do their own research and then they bring it all into a market and the, it's all getting aggregated into one single price that beautifully mm -hmm. and elegantly sort of aggregates all this kind of valuable information that we're dry, draw, drawing out of the world. And I find that really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I love that you can bet on the New York City high temperature in June, I know. on June 2nd, or TSA check-ins. That's we a great one. better than meteorologists, which is also cool. I will say, as a climate investor, I'm also very interested in all of the stuff you have in there about temperature and rain. Like it's. I mean, I would like to make a bet on China invading Taiwan. If you think about what economic insanity that would cause, Yes. if China took action against Taiwan, our portfolios, everybody's retirement, the economy would go down 50% or something like yes. if you could actually define I don't know how you define a war with Taiwan, but military action, who would be your source? Who's your yeah. Oracle, I think is what the in smart contracts, they call it an Oracle yes. in, in web three, who's the Oracle that China invades Taiwan, the New York Times, uh, you know, Congress saying it's an act of war, the president yes. might say it. H how would you define that one? Yeah, it's a great question. So if, if we were to do it, it would be something around the government, the US government, but but there's a big but. So this is one of the things we're regulatory. There's a few things that we do not touch. Mm -hmm. War, violence, terrorism, assassination. Mm. And then we also do not touch, uh, and this is funny, uh, we can get back to it, onion futures, because onion futures is the only uh, vegetable where you cannot trade derivatives on. Uh, it's illegal in the US. And I, I can tell you that story. But so anything around um, violence. these kind of violence we cannot death. do because that can incentivize mm. um, violence uh, and death. Xi Jinping can place a bet and then just be like, you know what? I'm going to make a ton of money when I invade Taiwan. We would not <laughs> like that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, so those types of things we avoid. That seems like a good rule. But can we go yeah. back to the onions? Onions. Yes, yes. So. Yeah, I can't let that one just <laughs> I know, I'm like, slide cool, cool, by. Cool. Onions, yeah. though. So in the previous century, two Let's brothers chop it actually. it up on onions, yeah. Yeah, Ew. so onions. Only vegetable, you cannot trade derivatives. It's actually in Dodd-Frank, it's illegal to trade derivatives on onions. Um, and the reason is because in the in last century, two brothers actually cornered the onion market. So what they did is like a lot of people put on short sales. And what they did is they short squeezed it. They bought all the onion supply in the market and got a lot, got a lot of people to go bankrupt. And uh, at the time, you know, I think the solution was like, it's a problem that is endemic to onions. 
Instead of the conclusion being, it's a problem that's annoying to human beings. You know, human beings are just right. So they buy all the onion farms, they corner the market on it, or buy all the onion supply, and then they crash the price of onions. I do. They're actually no. shocked up the price. There's a lot of shorts. People ah. that were short, they needed to rebuy the onions at some point to basically satisfy their shorts. Got it, got it. Yeah, and then they controlled the full supply, so they were like, Onions are expensive. I really, I mean, it is beautiful to me. It is so human nature to then make, are you guys familiar with the Simpsons episode where an asteroid is coming for Earth and they sort of barely escape destruction by the asteroid and they're like, let's make sure that never happens again. Let's burn the observatory. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like we're just going to make a one-off law about onions and that'll fix human nature. Like, what the (laughs) hell? I mean, it is. Oh, that's delightful. What what I like about what you're doing, I think as we, as we get ready to wrap here is, you know, human nature um, is to try to get an edge, right? right? So if you're a farmer, you want an edge to produce more per acre. If you're an entrepreneur, or you're a podcaster, you want an edge to get better guests, you everybody's looking for an edge, right? We're, we're performance driven creatures, we're competitive. That is innate in what we do. That is why capitalism as an operating system tied to democracy two forms of competition has resulted in the greatest uh, country in the history of humanity, the United States. That's why we keep winning. I hate to get all MAGA here. (laughs) No triggering anybody. But listen, there's a reason why we win so big here. And it's because competition, we we accept the reality of competition. Now, if you allow people to be competitive in an unregulated market, it's going to result in cheating, correct? It's going to result in a lot of problems. uh, Because Humans can't stop themselves. Most humans cannot stop themselves. Or some percentage of humans can't stop themselves, depending on how cynical you are, or how much you believe in people's better angels, people are going to try to get in. And I've seen it at the poker table. I've seen people we had this discussion with a bunch of poker players, they said, if somebody keeps exposing their cards at the poker table, in other words, you know, they're, they're looking at their two cards, their whole cards, and you can see it. I always tell people, protect your cards, I can see your cards. And if it, I'm in a hand, I don't want to play that hand. I will ask the dealer, like, you know, if it's a home game, I saw his cards. Can we just muck everybody's cards? There's been no action yet, right? Or I'm out of the hand, but, you know, if I've seen their cards and I have much better cards, what are you supposed to do there? It's like an ethical issue. I would rather just tell the person. And somebody said to me, the right thing to do is, and I disagree with this, but I understand where they're coming is, you tell them one time. They don't protect the cards after that. It's on them. Yes. Yeah. And I understand that. I, I disagree with that. I'm going to tell them every time. I can still see your cards. I can still <laughs> see your cards. But some people are like, listen, if that's the edge they want to give me, I'm taking it. And there was yep. a case of Phil Ivey, uh, you know, considered one of the top poker players. He had found a deck of cards, specific deck of cards that had been cut a certain way so that um, if you were to look at the cards, you could look at the edge. It's called edge sorting. And he found this oh. edge where he went to casinos to play Baccarat, I think it was. And he said, I want an Asian dealer. I want to have this type of room, this temperature. And he gave them a bunch of conditions. These conditions were done to obscurify what he was actually doing. And then he said, I want the cards placed. And then I want them turned twice. Like, you know, because gamblers are suspicious. And when you're a big gambler, you can say whatever you want. When you go to the table, I want a dealer who's this height. I want this music playing. And they will do whatever you want. So he gets this all set up and he hits a London and a, an a Atlantic City casino for $10 million each or something to that effect. And uh, it turned out he had found an edge in the cards that told him the, the probability of a face card. It gave him a super edge. He won. Um, and so 
then they sued. He, could, he didn't go to jail, but they didn't have to pay, I think, was the outcome. And mm. this was a huge question mark. And because it was the casinos losing, people said he was well within his right to find that edge and to exploit it. And I said, no, it's unethical. He should be okay. ashamed of himself for doing that. I don't care who it is, you know, like a casino or an individual. You shouldn't. That's not the right edge. But the people were doing this also with roulette. There was a whole roulette scandal. And I think it was the 70s or 80s. Somebody had gone and recorded every roulette spin before they had the digital things. They just recorded everyone in their memory. They would, you know, then write in a book and they found out for whatever reason, the alignment was off on a series of wheels in uh, Monte Carlo, uh, wow. somewhere in Europe. And they exploited that and they took down the house for millions of dollars and it took them a long time to figure that out. So anyway. But yes, corner. clearly the man loves gambling. Yeah. But Tarek, this is so yeah. interesting. And so I great. Love just anyway, great stories. I don't can't know if wait, you heard them Can't before. wait to disrupt all of economics with you. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. And no assassinations, please. What, is there anything else that's a no-no? He said assassinations, wars. We are betting. Would you bet on debts from COVID? I think that's fair game. Well, we, we have stayed away from it, generally speaking. Uh, uh, it, it's, you know, COVID is, is kind of a little bit of a different, like you cannot actually manipulate COVID. That, that would not work. Uh, and, and if you did actually try to spread COVID, there would be significantly, I mean, it would be obvious to be, you know, it's a kind of a different thing. It's a pretty serious uh, crime. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like grain futures. I mean, you could theoretically so like, huh. manipulate grain futures by burning a bunch of farms, but, but you know, I mean, yes, uh, right. that's, that's a lot. So I, I think that those are some of the kind of thresholds that we look at. I mean, just to kind of wrap up to, to your point, I mean, I think the whole point, and this is what excites me. We are believers in kind of information. Like the, the thing I love about Kashi is like, you can gain an edge by gaining information. We see some of our traders mm. kind of finding correlations between traffic lights and kind of like things around the economy and how much, you know, density is yep. going to be. There's like crazy things that are being brought in. I find that very beautiful. And I think the very important thing, as you mentioned, is like there needs to be a set of rules, ground rules of how this marketplace is going to function. Otherwise, it ends up being all cheating. And that's what I love yeah. about CFC, the C SEC. They've done a great job over the years at figuring out what the rules of the derivatives and securities markets need to be. Um, uh, to make the game fair, to make mm -hmm. it fair and, and, and reasonable and for everyone to be able to participate on equal grounds. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, we're very excited. Yeah. We're working very hard to make this a reality. Wow. Yeah. And, and elections, I guess you're going to do that for sure, right? We can comment on, on, on specific markets in the future. Ah, uh, okay. But right. we're, we're essentially speaking, working on... I mean, you're doing Biden's approval rating, right? So, yes. Or that's yeah. starting soon? Yeah. It's already there. Biden approval is on the, on the, on the, we do it on a weekly basis and people are, are doing a great job on forecasting the approval. And, and it's been great to see kind of how it's evolved over time as well. Amazing. Yeah. com. K-A-L-S-H-I.com. Tarek Mansour, thanks so much for the time. This is Tarek, thanks for coming. Very Please cool. come back. Please yeah. Come yes. Back. We'd love that. Maybe thanks during the election me. cycle. Who knows? If you had an election prediction market, maybe you'd be if there were any if reason there, if it did exist, I don't know. To come back then, <laughs> it could be really interesting timing. I do this all the time, Molly. I just, it's so obvious to me the product roadmaps that I, I spoil people's launches, but I can't, I can't help myself. All right, listen, great job. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Take good care. Thanks. If you are a founder of a pre-Series A company, you haven't raised that Series A yet, which is really hard. Well, we wanted to invite you to Founder University. This is a two-day intensive course. It takes place on June 13th and 14th. It's remote. It's free. We limit the number of people who can come. We ask you to apply. And this virtual workshop is free for founders and helps you understand how to fundraise and pitch, how to hire great people, how to build a world-class product, how to execute on your sales and marketing, and some growth techniques as well. The launch team and I have been doing this for a long time. It has been amazing for us to get to know founders. And that's why we do it. Of course, we want to help folks as many as possible. That's part of our mandate. 
But really, our mandate at launch here at This Week in Startups and, you know, the syndicate, which is where we invest, we meet and invest in companies, is we want to back builders. And so we use these events as a way to get to know you. And if you're building something and we see you're credibly building something interesting in the world, well, then we want to invest in you. So truth be told, every time we do Founder University, a uh, half dozen of those people, we wind up funding in the next year or so. So it's a great way for us to spend time with entrepreneurs. Um, we're going to be joined by a lot of experts. Uh, my friend Becky DeGraw, uh, who's my attorney uh, from Wilson Sincini, uh, will be speaking at the event. Fitbot's co-founder, uh, Jesse, uh, will be speaking. Marlo CEO, Mary Fox, will be speaking. So we get a bunch of our portfolio companies who have been crushing it and who have learned a lot. And we've seen that they are qualified builders. We have them uh, come speak at the event. So you see how we do things here at uh, This Week in Startups and Launch and the Syndicate. We like to uh, create a flywheel. We invest in people who come out of Founder University. Some number of them really crush it and become world-class companies. And it's not guaranteed. You have to do the work, folks. The ones who do, then we have them speak at a later Founder University. So a lot of the great companies we've met came to a Founder University. They got to know us. They learned something. It was worth their time. And that's really what we do with the agenda. We try to make it worth your time to take two days off work, uh, essentially. Now, it's, it's remote. So you, know, you can consider it your weekend, even though it's taking place around the week. Um, you consider it professional development. And if you learn one or two important things about running a company, fundraising, growth, hiring, well, those one or two things will pay for those two days. I am absolutely certain of it. Now you have to apply again, so you can register at founder.university. Yes, it's a great domain name. So go to founder.university and sign up. We also have a course called angel.university. If you want to invest in the companies and you think the philosophy I've explained here about how I invest in companies, and I've invested in over 300 of them. Um, if you think this is an interesting um, way to meet startups early, help them and invest in them, well, you can read my deal memos as we invest in new companies and you can join us on that adventure. And I do this through a course called Angel University that has raised close to $200,000 for charity. And you can sign up for Angel University at angel.university. We do it four times a year. Great program. Uh, and it's just me and my partner, Mike Savino, talking about uh, how we pick companies, how we evaluate them, how we diligence them, how we source them, like Founder University is a source of investment and deal flow for us. And uh, that three or four hour course, actually, I think it's more like four or five hours is well worth your time. All the proceeds from Angel University go to charity. And again, over 175,000, I think at this point, has gone to charity. So I'm very proud of that work. And Founder University is free. But you do have to apply and we do pick people who have built a little bit of something. So we're looking for you to have some skin in the game. We have a Founder University 12-week program, which you can also see at founder.university. We'll be starting our third cohort shortly. And you can apply for that program if you have not started building or your very early stages haven't incorporated yet. You're nowhere near the Series A. You're kind of in the solo or co-founder situation and you're just starting to build. Maybe, maybe you've incorporated, maybe you have it. And that's a 12-week course. And that's another great one that we do. So please join us, founder.university. And if you want to invest in these great companies, angel.university.